Get ready to break free from conventional thinking. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, conversations on DEIB and talent, where we challenge the norm, ignite change, and shatter barriers to celebrate the power of diversity. Are you ready? And now, your host, the visionary leader and advocate for change, James Dyson Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Breaking Barriers, conversations on DEIB and talent. I am your host, James Dyson Jr. And today I want you all to get ready for an electrifying episode. Today we have the honor of welcoming a true powerhouse in our world of HR and people analytics, Dr. Khalifa Oliver. How are you doing today? Thank you so I'm, much for being here. I'm happy to be here. I'm like not electrifying, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm happy to be here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. No, thank you for being here. This is an absolute honor. And I think when people, after our conversation today, and when they go take a look at your YouTube shorts, your YouTube videos, they'll find out exactly why you're electrifying in people analytics and HR data. It's amazing. Listen, um, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. I'm taking right. it. <laughs> So we'll go ahead and get into a little bit of your background. How did you get started in people analytics and the DEI space? So for me, so my background is in industrial organizational psychology. So it's really focused on the elements of work and data, like how do you create models? How do you measure how people are impacted at work and how to increase efficiency and processes? And so for me, a big part of that was always the elements of the employee experience before we called it employee experience, right? So commitment, satisfaction, stress, all that good stuff. So I've always, my my passion has always been around how do we improve the way people experience work, right? And then how do we do it in a data-driven way, right? Because we do it with the customer side. How do we do it with the people side in work? And so for me, DEI was just a part of it. I don't think there was a separation. And for two reasons. One is I think when you're really trying to people center how you design experiences people have at work, DEI is implicit. There's no way to get around it at all. And I think why we have to create all these laws and rules and stuff is because we're pulling out something that is already naturally and implicitly within the system. So we're literally creating a system where we're putting out something that it needs. And so now we're just trying to put it back. (laughs) It keeps trying to get you to put it back. And so that's the first way. The second way is I am an intersection of so many different things, right? I am black, I'm female, I'm an immigrant, right? And I'm now a mom, I'm a mom of a son with autism. So my whole life is just a series of intersections of what makes me me and what makes my experiences unique and different. And so I think when you're that person, you get pulled into every DEI conversation as you grow into your role, as you build your career, you just get pulled into, hey, you're Black. Can you come tell me about being Black? (laughs) Right. Hey, you're a woman. Can you tell me about your experience? So you just get pulled into it. And I think that you can separate it. And so I think I leaned into it because I do think that the employee experience, it is just a part of the employee experience. And I think you can do it in data-driven ways that are non-performative. And I think there is more need for us to be a lot more strategic about how we're thinking about DEI and input experience. Absolutely. And that's in one of the the most interesting ways that I've seen or when I watch some of your YouTube shorts is being able, how you say, being able to tell a story with data. And 
how you're telling that story makes the difference, especially when you're talking to executives, especially when you're talking to people who are more, we'll say, in the bottom line focus. All of the stuff that's in between is, is great and they like it if it helps them ultimately with their bottom line. So how do you tell that story to, to get them there? So what are some of the key things that, that you feel that are in your storytelling ability to get executives to listen and learn to that data and to that metrics? I think one of the first things that I advise anybody and that I use is always know your audience. I think you need to tailor how you speak to that audience, right? This is probably like boiling it down to the lowest common denominator, but the way you would speak to an adult is not the same way you'll speak to a child, right? It doesn't make sense. And so you have to really think about the, the end of your story. What is the outcome that you're trying to get into? And I think too often when we design processes and policies and pipelines and programs, what we're doing is we don't think about the end of the beginning. And I know that seems strange, but what does the CEO want to know? What is the CEO's interest? What's keeping the CEO up at night? Same thing with the CFO. What's keeping the CFO up at night? So if I'm having a conversation about people and about data with a CFO, I'm having a different conversation that I'm having with the CEO that I'm having with the CHRO, right? That I'm having with the head of data. I'm just having very different conversations, but I'm seeing the same things. So I think that's the biggest thing. I think too often we go in and we just say the same things. And, you know, with folks like me, we get really caught up in our nerdiness and we go in and we talk about data and we say things like, this is the percent of people with this sentiment. And they're like, okay, so what does that mean to me? So with the finance person, I need to tie it to their bottom line. For the CEO, they want to know more about it from an operational standpoint. What does that mean? What does that mean for the stakeholders? What do I tell the board? When I'm talking to the CHRO, the CHRO is constantly being yelled at by every person in the organization. So they want to know, like, how do I communicate this very differently? Marketing right. wants to know how to put it out there. And so I think that's what you have to do. The first thing with data storytelling is really knowing your audience. And so when you tell a story really well, especially a story with data, what's supposed to happen is that your voice remains in the room when you're not there. That is the key to, to really effective storytelling with the data. One of my biggest things I tell everybody is think of any childhood story, right? So let's think of three little pigs, right? You, when you are retelling that story to your child, to your niece, to your nephew, to, to some child, you're telling it like the voice in your head that first that you yeah. first heard it from, right? right? That's how you're telling that story. Whether you saw it on TV, whether it was your parent, whether it was your grandparent, that's how you're telling it because that voice remains in your head. And you may have heard that story from different people, but there is that one thing, that one person that said that story, right? right? Yeah. That that's how you tell it. And that's what data, that's what good data storytelling is, right? Yeah. That's what makes it effective. The other thing with good data storytelling, and I know this shouldn't be something I have to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> the data needs to speak for itself, right? That's so right. often when you go in, and this is big in DEI and all the DEI practitioners who listen to this, you know exactly what I'm about to say. A lot of times you have leaders who want you to craft the data into the story. That's, That's right. not how data works, right? That's, right? That's the data has to be the data and it has to be authentically speaking 
and creating the story. Data must drive the story. If you get into a situation where you're constantly feeling that you have to back the data into the story in order to make these leaders happy or be able to get something approved. It is not sustainable. It won't work. You can't justify it over a long time. It's not replicable. It's not valid. And you need a new job. I'm just telling you right right now, you need a new job because there's no way you're going to be able to keep doing that. Okay. It's called a lie. That's what that's called. It's called a lie. (laughs) That's right. Now, because what a lot of times people want to have a narrative that they already have, and it's, Let's find the data and the metrics to support this narrative. And and then we go from there. And I think that's, like you're saying, that's a lot of organizations or corporations right now. That's how they function. And that's how, as you said, like DEI practitioners get themselves in trouble is that they are finding the metrics to meet the narrative that's already That's already there. That's already there. And it's, you're not being true to the data for what, it's showing and let exactly the data, let the data create the narrative and then you solve the problem in the solution. yeah and then you figure it out after that you right you there. figure it yeah. out after, that's how data becomes your friend that's how data helps you but here we go right. with because <laughs> this is why we're here we're getting a bunch of we for some years we've got data to tell us what we thought we wanted to say but here we are mass layoffs issues with inflation jobs all over the place job descriptions in a mess some serious inequity where you think that came from backing data into a story it doesn't work doesn't yeah. work yeah and and that's and that's a good that's a good segue into kind of what we were talking about a lot of times about the transactional nature of a lot of companies can you share some of your insights on uh, transactional natures of some companies during layoffs and how does that approach impact employee morale and right. and I'll put it in air quotes loyalty because we'll talk a little bit we'll more talk about, about that. loyalty right. and how we'll I got strong loyalty. feelings on the yeah, use I, of loyalty. I, I understand <laughs> that. I completely understand that. So I think and again this is my biggest soapbox that I go on that We've gotten to a point where we're constantly treating people as numbers and we've got to get past that point, right? When I use data, it is my responsibility and it's a responsibility I take very seriously that I recognize that every person, every employee is represented by a data point, right? So every data point is a human being and it's a network of people and it has much bigger impacts than me making that decision, right? If I'm in finance and I'm counting dollars, it doesn't hurt the dollar if I miscount. Now my boss might be mad at me, but it doesn't hurt the dollar. We can try to trace the dollar. We could try to audit the dollar. We could try to find it back. You might sue me. I might have to pay it back, but the dollar itself isn't hurt. That's not how that works. But when I make a mistake with employee data, when I make a mistake, when that data leads to a bad decision on a process, on a program, on a hiring, on a layoff, on a firing, on somebody's performance metric, on their comp, when I make that decision and I use that data to do that, and I don't think about the person, I don't think about context of that data, I am creating a situation that could create lawsuits that create pain, that could create hurt, that could destroy a family, that could destroy a person, that could destroy a network. That is not something that should be taken lightly. 
we don't take it lightly on the customer side. We're right. very careful to personalize on the customer side, to customize on the customer side. But on the employee side, we don't see it because we don't see employees as customers of our business, right? right. But we, right. every business has an additional product. Every single business has an additional product, and that's the employee experience right? Which is including DA. That is the product that you sell them to recruit them. Recruitment is a form of sales. And so that is the product that you're selling them. They're buying into that product that you're selling them. They're buying into it. And they get in there and they're like, what is this? The difference with the customer is the customer might be able to give it back. That's right. right. The employees, well, I'm stuck right now, especially in this current market. And you think that they should just have to accept it. That's insane to me. And some of these customers, some of these employees are legit customers of yours. And they're seeing the difference between how they get treated as a customer and as an employee. That's insane. And I'm like, recognize that your employees are bigger ambassadors than people think, than you think they are. Because if I go for food in a restaurant and I ask the host or the hostess or the waiter or the waitress, what should I eat here? And they tell me, Whatever you do, this is great, but don't eat the beans. You know what I'm not having? The beans. The beans. <laughs> right? Because I make the assumption that this person, because they work here, knows more about this than me. If I ask the customer next to me and the customer's like, mm, don't get the beans, I don't necessarily, I might still get the beans, right? They might right. just not right. like beans. But That's the right. employee says to me, girl, don't get them beans. Don't eat those. I'm not eating the beans. You know what I mean? And so I'm like, that again, that's a minim- a minimization of what it is, but that's just the power of your employees. They're not yeah. nameless, faceless entities. And I think we have a new generation of people within HR, the younger people who will go on social media and talk about you in ways that Gen X and boomers and everybody haven't cannot even fathom that you would do they will talk about their pay, they will talk about their bosses, they will talk about their processes. I remember I listen, I did not want to get on TikTok until like working on my brand stuff and my brand manager's like, you need to get on there. So I'm like, fine. And I clutched my pearls initially. I'm a millennial, but barely. And I clutched my pearls at the transparency that they have. But then I Unclutched my pools and started to smile. Like, this is what we need in this system. It's refreshing. Call it out. It creates accountability in a system that was not traditionally there. And so we're having a fight right now against accountability. Love to see it, though, because they're pushing it back. And that's what the employee experience is about. It's about creating accountability, right? So the employee experience is not, and this is where people might, not agree with me, but I don't care. So the employee experience is not about happiness. And I think that's why leaders don't like to listen when we talk right. about employee experience because they think, oh, that's just warm and fuzzy stuff. And it's the same thing that happens when people talk about DEI, right? They're like, that's just like numbers and that's performative stuff, right? So we right. could just throw together three ERGs and we could do a nice marketing thing and that's DEI. Right. That's what they think right. it is. Yep. But I'm like, that's not what it is. Employee experience is strategic. It is a strategic part of your brand identity and your employee, your employer value proposition. That's your brand proposition. And it's about 
a true strategic employee experience is about ensuring that your employees are set up for success and they can work and they can perform. If they are happy, that's just a nice happy accident like my friend Bob Ross says. It's just a happy accident because happiness right. is subjective. There are many things that get, some people get happy for that pizza party. That's them. But that's not employee experience. And so what that means is I'm taking employee experience away from telling people how they need to experience it and putting it back on the organization to provide it. How do you set up your systems? How do you set up your technology? How do you set up your processes, your policies, your pipelines in order to allow people to work? How do these processes and these designs that you set up allow people in their different segments? How do they affect women? How do they affect people with different abilities? How do they affect black people? How do they affect Hispanic people? How do they affect white people? How do they affect your LGBTQIA community? Like, it, it makes you question, break down the elements of your processes and say, when I make this decision for people, what is the context of this decision? And I think that, so this is a long answer to your short question. <laughs> That's how you move away from the transaction. Because before the transaction is, I'm just going to set up this process, you're going to get paid, right? That's the transaction right there. I set up this process, you do work, you get paid right? And you better feel good while doing it. And I hope this pizza makes you happy. Okay. And I'm going to have an ice cream social next week and we might have a happy hour. And so this might make you happy. Okay. And I'm providing a really nice building for you to be in. So you better show up to this building next week because we pay rent on this and I need you here three days a week. That's That's the transaction. And so it's the idea that you see people as numbers and not as people. And I think we have got to get away from it. And the younger generations are like, nay, nay, we are about experiences now. And you can call us spoiled if you want to, but we are your workforce now. That's right. And that's the big thing. And my next question was going to be, how can organizations really strike that balance between ensuring financial viability and demonstrating genuine care for their workforce? during times of restructuring or downsizing, because it does in business, it does happen. You get to a point where either the business is not as strong as it was a year or three years ago. And in order to maintain the viability of the business, you have to make cuts. Decisions. yeah, Yeah. You have to make decisions. And sometimes those cuts comes in the form of people who are working in roles or areas that may go. And so it's not never to say that layoffs won't happen. happen. Exactly. Part of it, but it's how you handle it and how you handle the people who are subjected to those layoffs that I feel really makes a difference in an organization. And I've been through several different layoffs and I've seen organizations handle it great. And I've seen organizations handle it really, really Who I've seen it. Me too. Piss. So how can organizations really strike that balance? I think, first of all, stop telling everybody they're family. Okay. Let's start there. Okay. We're not family. Because when times get hard in the family... I don't drop my daughter off at the fire station, okay? I don't tell her that we no longer have any more money 
I got laid off from my job. We don't have enough income anymore. So one of y'all got to go. I'm sorry. That's it. Yeah. We're not family. It's business is a transactional relationship and I need we need to do that. Stop stop trying to go for the warm and fuzzies. Because it's funny that y'all are going for the warm and fuzzies and then you're like, we don't want to invest in warm and fuzzies. Make a decision. What do y'all want to do? What do y'all right. want to do? Okay. Exactly. So that's the first thing. The second thing is stop asking people for loyalty. Okay. Just because I'm loyal don't mean that I can perform really well at the job. Just because I'm loyal doesn't mean I'm productive. There are some loyal people I've worked for. They love the company. They're always in the company close. When I used to go to the office all the time, they have a coffee cup in their hand. We all know these people. They have a coffee cup in their hand. It's an open environment. They are the most loyal person. They have gone to every event. They do the birthdays, the happy hours. They are. They will just root for everybody. Rah, 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 rah. They will organize every meeting. Coffee cup, go from table to table. Just harass folk who's just trying to work. Just always in somebody's business, right? Like, how was your weekend? Can you sit down, Judy? You know what I mean? I got work to do. They're your most loyal. But they're right. not your most productive. In fact, they can go. When you're laying off people, Judy can go. Judy don't do nothing because right. she's loyal. So let's stop asking for loyalty. Let's not pretend because loyalty has to work two ways, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And it doesn't work two ways and it's okay. It's a transactional, work is a transactional relationship. And I think we need to be okay with saying that. It is transactional. And it's not, and work has changed from the way it used to be where people stayed in the same company for a long time and it was in a small organization, in a small town or in a specific city where generations of people work there. Now, it's that way for many people, like for example, in coal mine, and it's that way for many people still. But now there's more transitions and transportation across companies. Company, people are moving, people are changing jobs, technology is burgeoning so fast that sometimes the only way to increase your salary is to move from company to company. Like in my role, IO psychology, I am doing a lot of stuff where I need to fix things. And a lot of organizations are like, it's fixed. Thanks. And so I have to move to another company. That's just the right. way it is because I am in a space that I have grown to learn as a very reactive space. And so that's how that works. And so we're in that, we need to be in that truth telling, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think yeah. the facade has dropped and the facade dropped really quickly during COVID. And that's right. why I'm like COVID, COVID done call folks out. <laughs> COVID done <laughs> reveal people in their underpants like, oh no, we couldn't, we can't do this disability accommodation. You can't, huh? Oh no, people can't be productive from home. Your numbers aren't showing that though. We were pretty productive. That's what it looks you like. Did, you did pretty well during you COVID. You did good. Yeah, you did yeah, good. You're in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it's showing stuff, right? It, it show, oh, we don't need people. We replace everybody with AI. It didn't feel that way during COVID though. It felt like you needed some people. It felt like you needed a few people because technology was still there. I keep telling people AI is not so new that if you couldn't replace people with AI, you wouldn't have done it during COVID. Wouldn't that have been the best time to do it? Okay. Feels like you still need some people. And I think we need to stop with that lie, that facade. It's gone, it's dropped. And we were, we were learning that work itself can evolve and work itself has changed. And we need to be more intentional about what we're trying to do and what we're trying to say and how we're trying to design work. We just, we just need to recognize that is where we are. And I think leaders also have to learn to lean into what's happening because the change is happening and it's very difficult for people to go back 
into the lie, right? You can't ask everybody. Let's go back into the lie now. Let's go back into right. the story. That that right. worked for long enough. You won for this song. So now let's right. adjust to where we are. I think I think that's where we have to, as leaders, we have to be like, look, okay, fine. What's the next step, right? That's You're right. not going to be able to change the the current generations. You're not going to be able to change the millennials and the Gen Zs who are now like, listen, the world is messed up right now and it's not our fault and we can't afford anything and we're not going to stand for some of the stuff that the previous generations stand for. Right. We have new technology. We have new information. We're going to use it. There is nothing you can do about it. And so I think... That's right. This generational war that's happening is so unnecessary because one side has to realize they are decreasing. <laughs> you can, yeah. It, so maybe we just maybe we just start to come to the table and start talking about it in a more progressive doing that. way. Yeah. yeah. One of the one of the books that we had mentioned is called The Alliance by Reed Hoffman, one of the creators of LinkedIn, and in there he talks about where. The exact same thing. Employees are not family, you know, to your extent. You're not losing your job and going home and saying, hey, grandma, sorry. You're going to have to, we're going to have to drop you off at the bus stop. Right. We don't, we're we, done. Sorry. We're done. Our we're relationship no is now over. That's it. That doesn't happen. And so what he says is for employees and companies to start looking at it like the U.S. military. When you go into the military, you get a four-year contract. And they say for form years, you're going to perform these services or you're going to perform at this level, at this pay, doing these things. Right. After four years, you can basically re-up. You can reevaluate it. You can say thank you, but no thank you. The other side can say thank you, but no thank you. But it comes to an evaluation and both sides look at it and they say, is this been a good thing for both of us? Exactly. And if it is. Then we can re-up for, we can do another two years. And at two years, I'm gonna do a, we're going to do a little bit more. So I need a little bit more pay because you're right. asking more of me. Right. And I get paid, you know, military on the GS level based on your rank and kind of what you're doing from that aspect. And, but I think companies have gotten used to for many years, the notion of, you have to do more as an employee in order for us to give you what you deserve. Exactly. And that aspect. Exactly. There's always been the bonuses talk and that, and I agree with this. If you, you shouldn't necessarily get a bonus for just doing your just job. Just doing your job. That's your pay. You get your job for your pay. Except if but you're it, an executive, but neither here nor there. Go ahead. Right. Now, the... <laughs> circle back to that now that's now that needs to become on both sides you can't you, you can't do if a ceo's role is to take the company this year into 30 percent profit more than what it was last year and they're paying that salary that's the salary that that they're getting for that if they accomplish that goal it's no bonus. That should be. That was the task. That That's was the they, that was yeah. the whole job. It that was, was the, the whole, whole job. Now, if they get forty, if they get fifty, okay, you can get more for what you've done from that aspect. But um, 
I heard a, a, I heard somebody on a, on another podcast or another show and they were talking about how interns has perpetuated the continued system that we have in America of this almost like a classism aspect because the concept of free interns only works if the family of the individual has enough to support them in said city and said area from that aspect because you're basically asking a person to do some type of work for an organization for no pay for experience which is great but experience can't pay the water bill can't buy you food can't turn the lights on experience can't do all that so you have to have some type of a crutch or some type of support in the background that's taking care of those things while you get that experience right and so this creates a a natural divide between individuals because some individuals no matter how talented they are just don't have that support system behind them to be able to take that on exactly they can't can't do those internships they can't do that and and then they get chastised or they get that part that's a ding on them because later on they say oh you don't have that much experience you know that's much it's insane and this is one thing i liked about covid it's called the flattening of the playing field that is what occurred and with covid again we'll talk about whether or not companies actually care about people but with covid it was convenient that was a convenient side effect of having to make changes right Mm -hmm. it was what we have access to all these people that we did not know we had before and so i think to your point internships And this was something it took me a while to see, right? And so that's some of my own privilege, right? That you are asking people to make this huge change for cheap. If at all you pay, if at all you pay for cheap in 2020 something, you're asking them to do that. And in many cases, the coveted internships are in expensive cities. They're in New York. They're in California, where you want these people to live in a box with random roommates because that always goes well, right. and just to work for you for next to nothing, and because you want them to have that experience. And what it does, it creates an inequity. It just—it's a natural inequity. And I'm seeing that same time because now interns again paid a little something. I'm seeing some of that inequity returning into the system with companies asking people to relocate without paying for relocation. So now you are now going to once again be creating a natural inequity in the system because really you're only hiring people who can afford to do that and who have a, a landing space and who have a cushion to help them do that. And now, and I'm like the fighter back against diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations. There's a subtlety to it that it's not the most obvious thing that people see. It's not the sudden movement of the DEI leaders. It's not just that suddenly they're slashing and burning DEI programs. They're also reverting other things. And one of them is the decrease in relocation while at the same time decreasing COP. Because now you're asking me, like I'm in the Hunger Games, I have to pledge my fealty to you before I even step foot there. And you want to say, go out on faith, be ambitious. Listen, faith is cool. 
But I got to pay to live in San Francisco, right? I got to pay first month's, last month's. We're not talking about that. But when I first moved to South Carolina, it was like, what, 450 And I was like, 450 yeah. Now I'm looking at the cost of, I'm like, 2000 right? Yeah. To stay in the same kind of apartment that I stayed in college. And you're asking people to make massive sacrifices. And then when they get in, you're like, you might be able to get a 3% increase. And don't you think about asking me for a raise? Because right. now everybody has this threat of layoffs over their heads. Right. Yeah. And it's especially worse for people who are in historically marginalized groups that is an underrepresented groups. There was a research by Work Human and I think it's Black Men in Tech, right? They did some research and found that a lot more people of color and people who are in historically marginalized and underrepresented groups, when they look at financial financial education and financial benefits. So when you look at that financial education, financial wellness programs for work, they often are more communal right? They're more collectivistic communities. And so often they're not just taking care of their immediate nuclear family. They're taking care of parents. They're taking care of community. Many people in these groups belong to the sandwich generation where they're taking care of their kids and they're taking care of their parents, right? Which is different for a lot of people in the majority group who are more focused on their family. And so financial education and financial wellness is very different. And so now you're asking me to relocate to another city to follow you and follow this job in this market, in this economy, in this instability, asking for my loyalty. And what you're doing is asking me to choose between my family and my responsibilities and you, when you're not even showing necessarily of loyalty to your own people. You had layoffs last week. <laughs> You're asking me to move. Can you, I can't say, can you guarantee me that if I move there, that you will not lay me off for at least a year. You can't guarantee that. And you're not even willing to put that in our contract. And there is no provision for me. If in three months you decide that you no longer need my position anymore. Right. But you want me to move. And so there's this inequity in market because all you're going to do is the people who have the privilege to do that, the ability to have that money put aside, the parents who can help them. People talk about take a mortgage out on your second mortgage out in your house. First of all, that's my house. Chill out. Second of all, you have the privilege of owning a house to right. get a second mortgage from. Right. We have these conversations and we don't realize it. And honestly, James, these things happen from youth. It occurred to me the other day, right, when you think about school, right, and there's the perfect attendance scores and perfect attendance prizes. And it, I think it took me really having kids and really understanding like the employees and experience. I'm like, wait a minute. We are starting this stuff from when they're children. We are blaming these kids for their parents' situations. They don't have transportation. Their car doesn't work. We are telling these kids that even if you're sick, you need to be in school if you want this reward. Why are we doing that? Instead of telling people from the time they're a child, if you're ill, stay home, take care of it. If you can do that, if you have the ability to stay home, that's how we do it. We created a competition and prizes. Yeah. and rewarded this behavior. And so now, of course, when they get to work, they come to work sick. 
They're expected to be loyal because we're telling them be loyal. I went to universities. I feel like I've been to universities my whole life. We tell everybody be loyal to the universities. I paid you. Exactly. Like, wait a minute. I paid you a lot of money for the degree. I paid you a lot. I can't sell. I can't even resell this degree to somebody else. I can't say, you know what? Times is hard. Anybody looking for a PhD in IO right now? Can I, I can't get my money do, back. I can't. Right, I, can't I can't even get fifty percent of my money back. I can't get nothing back. I can't. Right. So I've paid you, but you're still asking me for loyalty, and you have the absolutely, you absolute nerve to come ask me for donations too. That's, it's not that I don't do it. I'm like the whole system. Because I do it. I'm guilty. I donate. I do all these things. But when you think about the absurdity of the entire system, right, my degree is paid for, right? It is bought. It is sold. They got their money. They've done everything they can do. It's done. There's no resale value on my degree, right? The promise was that I was going to get all these jobs on my degree. And that's not what's happening for a lot of people. So this inequity just perpetuates and perpetuates. And then it just keeps perpetuating in, in, in these schools. It's, it's nuts. It's, it's insane. It is. And I think we could have a whole separate podcast on the education aspect because that's And then whatever. We know what's happening to the educational system now in a lot of states and a lot of right. areas and what they're trying to do. But to your point, it is. It's showing kids and certain kids what they can and what they can't do. And it's it, they're trying to empower some kids. They're trying to denigrate some kids. They're trying to whitewash history in a lot of areas for some kids. And, and, and that's what's insane about it. You're doing this in a time of so much information. They're going to Google it. So, okay, right. don't teach it. They're going to Google it. This yeah. is a, you can keep trying, like a lot of these stuff that you're trying to do would have, was cool before because the access to information was not there. The encyclopedias took a long time to, to update. Like you bought that call. It was a Collins encyclopedia in your house. When you finally got it to it's Z, you probably needed a new version. World. I think we had the world book. The right. World book you know, pretty library sometimes is a lot, but now I just got to Google it. Right That's now, cool. it's just so I'm like a lot of the misinformation. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet too, but there's a lot of information. So you could do what you want, you could say what you want. Somebody, if they really want to find something, they can find it. So right. I'm like, this approach is from the 1920s. What are we doing? It's, it's not work anymore. Yeah. It's, but I was talking to my husband the other day, and we were talking about how he, when you really think about some of these conversations we're having as related to DEI. And of course, it's. I knew once that we started with education, I knew it was going to come to work. It was only a matter of time. So it's starting. It's right. starting because I think some venture capitalist is now being sued by one of the people who brought up the lawsuit mm. for affirmative action because this oh, venture yes. capitalist focused on, I think it's like minority or black owned women businesses or something right. like that yeah. for venture capital. And we knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to slowly start creeping into the workforce, right? It was all about getting the model and getting the precedent and all that good stuff. And I said, when you think about it, the arguments are never about equity. It's never about equity or creating equality in the system. So when you really think about what's being argued and you say, I don't think that you should have a space here. Again, 
you shouldn't, I don't think that you necessarily should exist. And then we shroud it in the idea of qualifications, right? We shroud right. it in the idea that this space is already owned by somebody else because it's like a piece of land, right? So right. that space in that university somehow already belonged to you and you're being replaced as opposed to this is an empty seat that I can go into. I didn't kick anybody out of the seats. We could talk about kicking people out of their homes and stuff, but we're not going to get into that right now. (laughs) But when we have these conversations, we're talking about, but aren't you in effect then saying that this space is reserved for you and this type of education is reserved for you and these stories are reserved for you? Then aren't you asking for the exact same thing then? Just without a tagline or a label? Aren't you saying that's what you want? You're having the same conversation, except this time you're arguing that it's for you and not for them because we're going to us and they. It's the same conversation that you're trying to have, right? That this space is for me and I have a right to that space. I have the right to exist in that space and nobody should take that space away from me. You're having the same conversation. You're saying the same thing, which to me shows you know very well, you know what you're doing. Right. And you know that the argument for it is correct, but you just want to make sure it's yours. Right. right. It's your space at work. It's your space in the applicant pool. It's your space in the school. Like, really, is it though? Because I thought it was an empty seat. You know what I mean? I thought it was, right. I, thought it was I thought it was a void <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? that we had there. Yeah, exactly. And so as this corporate landscape evolves and changes and from the Supreme Court ruling with the affirmative action as far as going from universities and everything, how do you foresee the role of DEBI evolving alongside talent management practices and what trends do you believe will shape the future of the workplace culture? I think we have to start integrating DIB more closely with all the other processes and functions of HR. I think, again, we're pulling something out of something. We're pulling DIB out of HR and out of people functions. We're pulling it as a separate thing. And I understand why, right? It needs a spotlight, but they end up competing with each other. Yes. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. So it becomes, this is my space. This is my space. Right when it's all a part of one thing. And I think the biggest trend we need to go into is how do we integrate these things throughout every part of our process? And again, we ask ourselves a different question, right? So the question is not, how do I find this percentage of people for the candidate slates, right? We don't necessarily have to ask that question. We ask that question because, I hate to say this, but because it's the easy question to ask. And that's why in a lot of the conversations about diversity, everybody loves to talk about quotas because numbers just seem easy. If I put five people here and I put two people here, you can, it makes sense, right? You can math it. You can make that math for somebody, right? But if I tell you, okay, how do we get enough people in here that will transform the way we think about this work and how that can help us really be innovative with our product. I'm asking you the exact same question, right? How do we find people from different backgrounds and different sources and different ways of thinking that will help make us a better product? So then we're tying it to the outcome. So the other thing is I feel like HR and DEI also need to be part of the operational imperative and strategy of the company. The COO and the CFO needs to start having those conversations too. I don't care what you call it. 
right? I don't care right. if DEIB makes you mad and draws your angst. And so you don't want to call it that. If you want to call it, how do we increase the scope of innovation across the company? How do we increase the cognitive innovation across the company? I don't care what you call it because I don't care if that is what makes you comfortable, fine. And I know a lot of people argue they shouldn't be comfortable. I'm fine with it. It's the same conversation. Right. If I could pull the distraction out of the conversation and have the exact same conversation, I will have it. And then later I will do my whole gadgets, same conversation. That's fine. I don't care. Progress is what we need to make. And so I think right now we're talking about everything as separate conversations from each other. Yeah. And and we need to do better. I think a lot of DEI professionals, I'm sorry, DEI professionals, we embrace the performative. Yes. A lot of DEI professionals, they embraced it. They were like, I see an opportunity. I'm going to take it. You created more damage than good. You leaned yeah. into the performance and you created more damage than good. Because here's the thing, they don't need your performance anymore. That's just, that's the way that worked. That was finite. And that's, that's the way that was. People are pushing back on what is making them uncomfortable. I'm all about leaning into the discomfort. But you know what makes people comfortable? Money especially decision makers, money. That's right. Yeah. And if we can talk about the business outcomes and we could really talk about how these different elements of work can be improved, I think those are the way we have to have these conversations and stop the competition that we have. I also think and I, ERGs. Stop making historically underrepresented and marginalized people solve their own problems for free to make yourself feel good. It just and to make the company quote unquote look good. And there's there's a lot of companies that uses ERGs as the founding part or function of yeah. their DEI yeah. for the entire company. We gotta and stop it. We got to stop and, it. Right. I would rather, if, I would rather us get rid of an ERG in our organization before we do that. It's because it's in, not helpful. I agree. It's almost like the internship. It's I'm taking, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a chance to fix your own problems, but you have to fix it. But you can only fix it if you make sure you do the work that you're supposed to be doing for me. First, you do it alongside. Exactly. It's everything exactly. is. I don't know how many times I've heard of. Yeah, we really want to do this, but we don't have any money for it, or we don't have anything extra for it. And so, a lot of times, we do the work because we know the work has to get done. So, regardless of whether or not it's getting paid for or not, we go do it. But and we do the work because we right. exist. And I, I think but that's what people don't realize, right? We. By existing, just by exi by taking up space, we have to do the work. I can't even begin to tell you so many questions I get asked just because I exist as a black person, or as a female, or as a parent, or as an immigrant. Like, how did I get pulled into this conversation again? I was doing data in the back. What do you mean? Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> how did you find me again? What do you like? I am not a representative for everybody right now. What do you mean? You right. know what I mean? So the work is being done. But I'm also trying to get my check. That's all I'm saying. Right. But sorry, right. I interrupted you. No, no. But it goes back to your point of saying that we just have to, we at some point have to start acknowledging that this is what's happening yeah. and that we're not going to 
do the work anymore. And that's a thin line, I feel, because right. you have some organizations that would just say, okay, we, we didn't really want to do it in the first place. So, you know, your options are going to be either you do it for free or we just don't do it. And I think a lot of times one of one of my colleagues asked me, he, he was like, how is this? Is it going to detriment kind of the work that, you know, that I do as a DEI consultant? And I said, no. I was like, I think it's going to show truthfully the companies and organizations that are really honest about doing DEI right. and the organizations who truly want to make a difference and want to make a change. And now we get to find out who really wants to lean into it. Exactly. Because, because there's exactly. going to be a lot of extra stuff that they're going to have to do in order to get around or through some of these new hoops and hurdles that are they're going to be put up. So how now do you go reach out to historically black colleges or how do you reach the student minority unions in traditionally white colleges like an MIT or Harvard? Right. How do you still now extract out minority students? without having the threat of this lawsuit. Exactly. Exactly. And it's different, right? It's like when you look at who's benefiting from affirmative action policies, right? It's not right. them. It's not those kids. It's not the it's not the black folks. You know what I mean? It's not the people who are being blamed. Right. You start looking at that. I tell people like when you think about affirmative action and just think about like quotas and think about adversities, they're different what about veterans? Veterans benefit from these policies. People who you sent out to fight wars for you and they come back and are having a difficulty with civilian life because we've decided we don't know how to translate their skills. Veterans benefit. People in different geographies benefit. People with different abilities and cognitive abilities benefit from these things. So you think you're shutting down one thing, but you're hurting everybody. You're hurting everybody, including yourself, because all companies benefit from it. Because these the, half of the burgeoning technology that came out, I would say even more than half, the technology that burgeoned during COVID, all that technology that grew, as they were able to hire people from all over the place as they were able to flatten the job landscape as they were you think that is a coincidence that you became more diverse and then we had all these huge leaps and jumps during a time that people were in a pandemic right that's not a coincidence because you when you put different people with different thoughts and different geographies and different experiences together and they challenge each other, you create new, better things. And I know we had talked about this at one time, so I really want us to say it. Stop thinking we want to talk about stuff we don't. Marginalized and underrepresented people. We don't want to spend time having these conversations. We don't want to talk about affirmative action. We don't want to, we don't want to talk about the fact that it even has to exist. We don't even want it to exist if we're honest, because we realize we don't want to have to always argue why legally we have the right to exist in any space. Right. We don't want to talk about these things. These aren't things that we love talking about. Right? So stop thinking that we're always saying, why does it always have to be a race? That's what we're asking too. 
Why does it always have to be about race? Why does it always have to be about gender? Why yeah. does it always have to be about sexual orientation? Like we're asking the exact same questions too. We don't want to talk about it. We're just unfortunately in the position where we always have to. And these conversations are not new. We're having them. Even if organizations stop DEI stuff, they stop the programs, they fire everybody who does that for DEI, the conversations have been happening. We've been seeing them quietly. That's the difference. Somewhere around 2020, we started to have the quiet conversations out loud. That's right. That's all that happened. Then y'all start to show out. So we started to have those conversations quietly again. And now there's a different group of people having the quiet conversations out loud. And we just letting them have it because we've heard those conversations before. And we also know those are not new conversations. Some of y'all are just hearing those conversations for the first time. So when you clutch your pearls, when you hear those conversations, we're like, we try to tell y'all those conversations was happening. We try to tell y'all. So this is... That's exactly right. It's what Will, Will Smith had said the thing about the police brutality. It's just like, it's always been happening. It's just now being recorded. And exactly. Seen. Exactly. And, and that's the same thing with a lot of these conversations. They've been going on. We've been now, talking about it. Now, mm -hmm. now they're just feeling that they can just talk about it. They can talk about it. They just say it out loud. So we're like. Just it out. Let's come on. Let's come on <laughs> and talk about it. Come on. Get all <laughs> Get it off your chest. Go ahead and say it. Say it with your whole chest right now because everybody over there didn't hear you. We heard you like 12 years ago. The people over there didn't hear you before. Oh, my goodness. Well, Khalifa, this has been absolutely amazing. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on, talking with myself and my listeners here. I know that they are going to just absolutely love this podcast. How can people find you, get in touch with you? What's the best way? for them to follow you and, and define you. Yeah, so if you're looking for me on LinkedIn, because that's where I am a lot, so it's Khalifa Oliver on LinkedIn, but on all my platforms, I am at Dr. Khalifa O. And I'll send you that information, but I'm at Dr. Khalifa O on TikTok, on Mastodon, on Threads, on whatever's out there. That's how you find me. Instagram, that's where I am. So I'm having fun on TikTok these days and on YouTube for me. And all of, and I'll have all of the information attached to the podcast. And so it'll be on the thread there as well, too. Dr. Oliver, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Breaking Barriers, conversation on DEIB and talent. Stay tuned. We'll be back for another episode next time and find out who my guest will be on that one. Until then, take care, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening and joining us on Breaking Barriers, conversations on DEIB and talent. Stay tuned for more episodes as we continue to challenge norms, amplify diverse voices, and celebrate the power of inclusion. Together, let's shape a world where everyone's talents are recognized and celebrated. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider liking, subscribing, and leaving a review. Your support helps us reach more listeners and continues to bring you thought-provoking content. 